Hello, and welcome to the Plugged In Podcast, where we talk with founders and CEOs in order to bring you the real stories of failures and triumphs, highs and lows they've experienced on their journey toward success. We will go in-depth with our guests to give you insights into how they have taken an idea from concept to realization, making those first key hires to building the right team, scaling revenues, how they overcame obstacles, and much more as we learn how they achieve success. This is the podcast that you want to subscribe to if you want to learn how to succeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Plugged In. I'm Ellie Mandelbaum, an industry veteran who decided to do more than just listen to podcasts, but actually start one in which I interview people much smarter than me. In this episode, we're speaking with Yaron Samid, a serial entrepreneur with over 500 million exits and most recently co-founder and CEO of Billguard, which was acquired by Prosper in 2016. He advises startup founders, CEOs, and runs Tech Aviv, a nonprofit Israeli startup founders club, which he founded in 2007, and we'll get into that later in the episode as well. Um, Tech Aviv has over 3,000 members where they learn and help each other by harnessing their collective knowledge and networks across six global ranches. Yaron founded three technology companies, including Billguard, which pioneered the use of crowdsourcing to save consumers millions of dollars in wrongful charges and overspending. Becoming one of the fastest growing personal finances apps in history. Now it's again Prosper. Prior to, prior to Bill Gard, Yaron founded a P2P content delivery network, Panda Networks, which was acquired by Microsoft and DeskSite, and led product management teams at Zen, BackWeb, and Register.com. Yaron was the founding board director of Cloudlock, acquired by Cisco and Pond5. And there's much more to it. So let's just get right into it, Yaron. Welcome to the show. I hope I covered everything. Uh, if not, why don't you fill in some of the details quickly? And jump in. There's a lot going on there, and I've known you for really a long time. And this seems a lot more to, to, to say. Well, that was that was a lot. I don't know if I have much to add, Ellie. Like that's it. I think we're done. Um, but uh, it's a it's a an honor to be interviewed by you. Like I said, if you said we know each other kind of informally for a long time, so for you to interview me, it's like I have to actually reciprocate because I'm not sure I qualify. For the smarter than you criteria for being in this podcast, <laughs> but I'll do my best. Excellent. So, you know, get started with, you know, what drove you? You know, when did you first realize you wanted to build? Right, you wanted to start your own company. Uh, wow, it's a great question. I mean, I am first and foremost inspired by two parents who are uh, highly entrepreneurial themselves. Uh, my dad, to this day, you know, he's over seventy and running a startup called Bitmint. He's the founder CTO of uh, uh, this company that is um, uh, building something very much in the spirit of blockchain, but with a central mint for uh, digital money. Um, and so when you have a father like that who throughout your childhood has been kind of doing his own thing, uh, you kind of think that's normal uh, <laughs> as opposed to getting a real job. Um, and my mother equally is... Uh, a trailblazer in the field of oncology, um, and uh, I, I'm very, very inspired by and love both of my parents. So I think very early on, I kind of got the notion that I could do things slightly differently and, and in my own way. So um, I, while I was born in Israel, I was raised in the States, um, and I uh, started a career in... Um, really marketing to, to begin with because I didn't know what I wanted to do in college and uh, it was very fortunate for me to start you know just finish my academic career in 95 which was pretty much the birth of the web right mm-hmm. 
Uh, you and I are old enough to remember yeah. those days. <laughs> so uh, it was incredibly fortunate timing where I was already bent to kind of being a CEO and doing my own things, but uh, the internet really was the was the um, incredible uh, uh, ecosystem that I could play in as opposed to a kind of traditional job. Even though when I finished you know, college, my first job out of school was actually working at Edelman Public Relations. Oh, I remember. I, I, I know. In New York City. <laughs> so, like, top floor in Times Square, right next to where the ball drops. Uh, you know, you have to wear a suit and tie. And uh, I was enamored by the whole New York life because I grew up right around the, the Washington, D.C. area. Um, but four months, four months literally into that job, I got, uh, I got fat fired. Um, and so I was almost forced out of the kind of the suit and tie corporate world um, by this very nature of who I am. And, and who I was was this really brash 24-year-old kid who had taught himself in college, um, you know, basic HTML, just because that was the kind of the awesome new thing to, you know, tinker mm-hmm. around with. Um, I was working at, I was at the University of Maryland at the time that Sergey Brin, who was yep. at my age, was sitting literally in the lab, same lab, which was in the basement of the parking lot, uh, dreaming up the future Google. Um, <laughs> and so it was a very kind of uh, exciting time. And uh, when I went to Edelman, they, they have this ridiculous um, one hour uh, time in the morning, nine to 10, where all the junior account executives clip um, from newspaper stories about their clients <laughs> with scissors in a newspaper, right? It's a little old school. A little old school. But in 95, yes, that was yeah. very, very common. Yeah. And it was done that way for 100 years, which is exactly what my boss told me when I said, hey, I have this cool idea. You know, I, the web thing, this internet thing exists, and I kind of know a little bit. I'm going to build this, like, um, basically a bunch of search engine input fields in an iframe, and then I'm going to type in my, the client field into this page, and I'm going to run it, and then all the search results I'll just print out. And I did that, and I printed it out, stapled it, you know, put my feet up on the desk while everyone else was working for an hour. I worked for about 30 seconds once that page was live. And then I delivered those results to my boss, and my boss was like, that's great. Go back and do it the way we've been doing it for 100 years. And my brash 24-year-old self didn't react to that <laughs> in a very corporate America sort of way. And uh, long story short, I got fired within four months. And so I'm in New York. Um, paying rent, you know, I was living in Brooklyn Heights at the time and had no job. And that was the day I was kicked out on the street there in Times Square. I said, okay, I have no idea what I want to do next. Let me look for a quick job in order to pay the rent. And I found a classified ad uh, in the newspaper that had the word internet in it. And that immediately caught my eye. I was like, this internet thing, which is not something you do, but something you kind of have fun playing around with. I want to play around with it. If I get a job and get money for doing the internet thing. And that classified ad was for a small company called Foreman Interactive, which was run by uh, two sons of uh, a guy who's had an amazing, like a steel kind of manufacturing company in Brooklyn. Um, but these two young guys, uh, Richard and Peter Foreman, had in 95 bought the domain register.com. Right back when all these domains were starting to be uh, sold. And uh, they invited me to be like basically head of marketing at 24 years old because I, you know, worked at Element for four months. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, but they were, they had developed this um, HTML authoring tool 
They didn't know what they want to do with it. They had the domain register.com, didn't know what they want to do with it. And there I was, one out of, I think we were about six or seven people at the time working in the uh, manufacturing plant of their dad's uh, uh, company, Form Interactive. And that company became register.com. Um, and I got to see from the ground up, Richard and I are still buddies, today, uh, I get to see Richard basically build a $2 billion public company. Um, even though I, I wasn't there the whole time, but I got that early sense of like, wow, you could take nothing and turn it into something on the internet. There was a brand new playing field and I caught the bug. Um, that was sort of the, the genesis of me getting into kind of the tech slash internet world and realizing that, you know, this guy, Richard, who was a very smart Ivy League guy, wasn't necessarily doing anything that was too much beyond what I could do, I thought. And so I realized that this is a pass I wanted to get on. I wanted to be like founder, CEO, whatever that was in the internet world. <laughs> uh, and that was the start of my, that was the start of my career. That was the very first kind of internet job I had. So it's funny, that was something that I was, my next question, which you answered was, something you failed at, which you got fired at. Yeah. <laughs> to four months, oh, yeah. you know, paying no rent. I mean, you definitely overcame that. So that, you know, that, you know that's a great story. Yeah. Um, so from register.com, right? So you're doing marketing for, how long were you register for? It was a little over uh, a year, almost two years. And then what happened was, this is just at a personal level, I knew I always wanted to go back to Israel. Um, and uh, I had read in Wired magazine, I think it was, an article about this push technology company called Backweb mm-hmm. from Israel. And I saw that they were coming to a conference in New York City um, at the Javits Center. And I said, okay, I'm going to go talk to these people because eventually I want a ticket to go back to, to Israel. So I just, 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 I'll stop here and say, so anybody who's listening, there's a key point right here that you got to take, that you got to take into account. Don't be shy. You got to go for it. You got to go. You got to get up, walk to the guy, shake the person's hand. And there's nothing like old school, classic, you know, in the sense sales, right? Or business oh, yeah. development. I'll drive that point home for you, by the way. Before I found them in the conference, I wrote them a proper letter, which got properly rejected, which was, hey, I want to come work for your company. Here's my CV. And the head of HR basically said, thank you. We don't have anything for you. And being entrepreneurial... And aggressive, I said, okay, I'm not taking no for an answer. This is a perfect company. They have an office in Israel. I eventually want to end up, you know, back in Israel, uh, even though I hadn't lived in Israel, you know, um, since I was three and a half years old, but I knew I wanted to always go back. Um, and the way I hacked into this was that I found out they're coming to the conference. I did not buy a ticket to the conference. I didn't have the money to, <laughs> but I waited out in the hallway until the, the back web people showed up. And I ran into this young kid my age, uh, Greg Skibisky, um, yeah, who is, is equally kind of uh, passionate but, and naive about the internet. But uh, he was very friendly and said, look, I like your hustle, let me introduce you to this lady, Mickey Nash, who runs the VP of, of uh, product, I think, at the time. And I, I don't know, I guess I charmed them with my chutzpah <laughs> and saying, look, I'm not leaving. You know, and they walked me to their booth so I could hang out with them, which is cool. And I hung out at their booth for like an hour. And I was like, I'm... I, I'm I'm not leaving until you give me a job. Basically, I need to do this internet thing and I want to do it in Israel. And so um, that's how I met Eli Balkat and Neil Balkat. Um, and uh, they gave me a job. And I told them, you know, I want to go back to Israel. They said, listen, we need you in the Valley for a while because we're building up our marketing and product management team. You have a good background for it. Um, and so that 
That was the way I got that job. If I had said, okay, I got a rejection letter, that's it. I would have not ended up at BackWeb, uh, where I spent five years and learned product management, by the way. I switched from a marketing guy to a product guy at that company, uh, very much thanks to the mentorship and support that Ellie um, gave me. Um, and that was another amazing CEO to be inspired by, Ellie Belkat and BackWeb did some amazing work there, taking that company public as well from nothing. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, it was the, the, the tenacity that got me in the door. Yeah, which is something that, you know, a lot of people, I think, don't realize that you still need, right? Just because you get a rejection doesn't mean you stop. If you really want to do it, you go after it and, and you figure it away. So, okay, so you worked at Bagrep for five years, you two years, so seven years out of at a school already. So when did you come up with the your, your first startup? Like, what, what, what made you think, okay, I have an actual product that I can take to market and I can build? Um, so this is about 2001 now. I've already moved back to Israel with BackWeb. Um, prior to that, I, I, I was in Silicon Valley, also Toronto with BackWeb. It was a great run there. Um, but then I moved back to to, uh, to Israel. Um, and around 2001, um, and this is after also I had done another stint where I was, I wanted to leave BackWeb and start a company. I was so inspired. And I just didn't know how to do that or what that was. And so in the meantime, to pay, pay the bills, I did some marketing and product consulting. Um, and one of the companies that I started like, consulting for was a company called Zend, the, basically the, the, the pioneers of PHP. And uh, it was a really good fit. Um, and they made me a very, very good offer to come be the VP of marketing. Still, I'm very young, you know, in my 20s. And they said, yeah, we want you to be VP of marketing. I took that gig for about a year. Um, learned a lot about open source and community and things like that. And so about a year afterwards, I said, okay, I'm ready. And I had an idea that I was passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, I've always sort of been a, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs are, um, closet artists. You know, you want to do something like make <laughs> movies or make music, you know, be a, a rock star or whatever. Um, basically express yourself creatively. And, and so... I was very enamored by you know, the, the music business and what, what was happening in that industry, which was the, the business model was being disrupted by peer-to-peer -peer, uh, Napster. Napsters and Scours and those kind of uh, companies were, were basically forcing the music industry to have to reinvent itself or try to sue these companies out of existence, which they successfully did. But nothing was going to be the same after that, where you realize the internet... Um, change the rules of music. And I saw an opportunity um, to basically connect um, musicians directly with their fans using the internet. And it was at the time that the CD sales were slumping because people were stealing music online. And I had this kind of uh, basically simple idea, which was put a little bit of software on the music CD itself in order to incentivize people to go and buy the CD because only if you bought the CD and popped it into your computer would you get this exclusive software that would get you registered to that artist's um, exclusive channel of content. Like you could only get certain music videos or certain tracks if you installed the software and had it basically broadcast down to your computer using push technology, which is what I learned at, at Backway. And so I started uh, uh, working on a company called Fan Networks. That was the original name of the company, Fan Networks. And then I, in the process of doing that, either I found them or they found me Richard Gillum, who was starting a company called Death Sight, said, look, 
this is exactly what we're, we want to do. You have the product shops to do it. We don't. We're just a, like a basically a bunch of business guys in California. Um, let's merge. Let's do this together. And we'll call it Death Site, or rather Death Site Music at the time. And uh, I agreed. They had funding. They had uh, a team. And I had the product chops and the idea to go to market with something really special. And that's what we did. Uh, we called it Death Sight Music at the time. Uh, now it's just Death Sight. And we, uh, we started selling to the largest record labels in the world, Bertelsmann, um, Universal Records, mm-hmm. Interscope, etc. I got to go to some amazing parties. With, <laughs> with, uh, at the time, we were working with uh, Eminem, Britney Spears, Madonna, etc. It was a really incredible time. Um, and we built really great software that was used by millions and millions of people because these artists were basically saying, like, get my CD to get my death site. Um, and uh, that was an, an, a really nice segue coming out of the whole push technology era where you could flip the paradigm of going and you know downloading music from, from the internet versus pushing really rich media down to your desktop. And that was very conducive for these music videos and big mm-hmm. music tracks at the time. Um, and that was Desktop. That was the first kind of uh, company that I started building from scratch on my own was Desktop. So how, how was it? I mean, so you didn't have to go for the funding wrap because you ended up merging with guys. Yeah. Um, and the sales, like what was the first customer you went after? So they, they had a sales team in California, okay. but I actually remember that I was quite involved with that from day one. I think the very first... Uh, um, very first customer was Andrew Maines at Interscope Records. He was running digital at the time. That was a very pioneering thing to do because they didn't really understand what to do with the internet. But this guy, Andrew, was at Interscope. Um, we you know, uh, became buddies uh, around that site. We built something very custom for them. And that was, that was the, the very first sale. That, that deal, which was on Eminem's um, <laughs> CD at the time. Yeah. I forgot which one it was, like the Marshall Mathers... That CD, I think, till this day, if you go into an old record store and buy that CD, you'll see the Death Sight software that we developed and designed. And by the way, I was I, I, I moved back to New York to do this because there's a bunch of record labels both in New York and California, obviously. And I was working out of my sister's apartment uh, uh, with my friend from college. And I said, listen, you do the graphic design, I'll do the, the product work, we'll go do sales and BD. And it was just... Such a naive and awesome time. <laughs> it didn't end there. So from there, you went to um, you went to your next your next startup, right? So you left yeah. there. What made you leave? Like you just wanted a new a new um, a new idea. You you felt a new space you wanted to conquer. So this was a classic example of seeing an opportunity through the limitations of your current company. So the limitation of Desite was that we were, our business model was um, advertising. And in order to run an advertising model, you would have to have a very large number of eyeballs, which we had, millions of fans of these artists. But pushing the media down to your desktop at the time was expensive. And so the margins between uh, the cost of delivery of the, of the really rich media and running ads against that content were not really um, uh, uh, significant enough to build a meaningful business. And... Uh, it reminded me back to the very genesis of Desai, which was these peer-to-peer-based networks were delivering content blazingly fast, 
amazingly efficiently by leveraging the idle time of, of all the nodes, the computers in the network who were all sharing the, the, the music. So there was something inherently right about how peer-to-peer networks moved bits around the internet, even though the application of it was for illegal file sharing. <laughs> but so the, the opportunity that I saw there in my own margins at that site, which just were limited by the fact that we were doing server-to-client push technology, was let's build a, a, a content delivery network that was based on peer-to-peer networking. Let's invent a way to push large media between people, leveraging idle computers of people who uh, would participate in the network even though they wouldn't be sharing the file. So I could send to you, for example, a one gigabyte attachment of my, uh, you know, my kid's basketball game on video um, by simply attaching it to, to an email, having it go. And then magically through the network, there would be this sort of distribution of the bits and then recollection of the bits on the other end on your computer magically, which was a pretty simple, if you think about it, software uh, um, problem to solve. It turned out to be more complicated with encryption and security and safety and things like that. But uh, I started uh, exploring that while at DeskSite. And it wasn't appropriate for DeskSite to build a content delivery network, right? We were an application company. And so I saw the opportunity to start um, to start uh, Pando. And this is in, I guess, early 2004. I don't know if, I'm, if I got my date, dates right. Yeah. Started working on that. Um, basically sketched out an idea for a patent on how to do that, even though I'm not a technologist. It's kind of a basic idea of how you distribute the bits, re- recollect them, do it in a secure way for one-to-one delivery of rich media. Basically, saw first of all the 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 opportunity at the consumer level to get the the applications out was a simple utility like WinZip, which would have a .pando file that people would email each other, so that when you were emailed the .pando file, you would have to install the app as well. Um, as a product guy, I was uh, you know very into how how you grow in an organic, cost-effective way. And this model, like a WinZip model, was in, had this inherent virality that you can't open the .zip file unless you have the WinZip app. And so I designed a, a software. And when I say design, I wireframed it. I wrote out kind of like a product plan for it. And then I went looking for uh, a co-founding CTO, which I found in uh, a guy named Laird Popkin, crazy genius uh, rocket science type guy who is a deep, deep uh, technologist. Um, and went back to Eli Balkat from Backweb, who was already very wealthy at the time, and said, and had a VC at the time. He had a BRM. Yeah. And I said, I have this idea. I see a market opportunity. Um, have a good technology co-founder. I think I might have a company that, that I can launch here. I need a little funding to basically bring Laird from his company, pay some salaries, and build this product. And he uh, he said, I um, I got your back. You know, he was very impressed with me at Backweb and uh, was a great mentor to me and said, yeah, let's do it. And he, him and uh, a couple of other VCs that he brought in put together a small, at the time it was called an A, today we call it pre-seed, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, we started, we started working. And one of the things that, um, one of the things that early on uh, we decided to do was bring in a, uh, a high-powered media executive to be CEO. Um, at the time, I felt that it would be a better choice than me running the company as a CEO, even though 
I was the one who kind of put it together and fundraised for it. And so we looked, Ellie and I looked together for a CEO. We found this guy, Robert Levitan, who was the CEO of, uh, of iVillage and sold it for like yeah. $400 million or something yeah. like that to We brought him on early on. And so it was myself, Robert, and Laird Popkin co-founding Pando to basically build an Akamai using peer-to-peer. But we would get it distributed to the world through this consumer app that allowed people to attach files and email. And that was the way it grew for incredibly virally. We were up to, by the time I left that company, it was 26 million uh, consumers. We were profitable. And then we were pivoting over to the kind of enterprise side, media side of delivering for companies large files. Okay. So, and they were paying what? That was the, the revenue model was how so? I mean, was it, you know, how did you get the traction, right? So you built it, you found your, 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 your CTO, your co-founder, and then you brought a CEO on. So you went out there, built a product, you have to sell Right, so who, who, are you, who are you going to the B2C world first? The, the go-to-market idea was B2C so that we could get a bunch of basically clients running out there with idle time that we could use for this global network. And so we were marketing it to consumers. It was inherently viral, so it grew very fast. Um, and we were monetizing with uh, some ads in the app and a classic freemium model, which is if you want to send a certain number of files at a certain speed, because we could rate limit the speed, it's free. And if you want to go unlimited speed or super fast speed um, with more files, larger file sizes, you would you would basically upgrade to a premium plan. And okay. on that alone, we were able to run a pretty profitable business, but it wasn't still like a rocket ship, like yeah. register.com yeah. or backwood that we saw. And we always knew we wanted to eventually pivot to like an Akamai CDN model yeah. once we had the nodes out there. So we got the nodes. We were at like tens of millions of, of clients running the, uh, the application. And then we started uh, doing delivery for uh, big media companies, large game developers, you know, games, or I mean, to this day, are multi-gigabytes. Yeah. To download them, you need a downloader app and a distribution network. It was very expensive to do it with like an Akamai or like a level three at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did it at 80% efficiency in terms of cost um, and even speed. And how many that people, was the main business. How many people did you end up growing the company to? I think we were 40 people, something like that at, the, at its peak. Um, and then, so four years into it, when we were doing enterprise, I realized that's less exciting for me. <laughs> it's another thing. You need to be true to your own DNA and realize what, uh, what you're truly passionate about and really, really good at. And I'm good at consumer product. That's kind of my specialty. It's mm-hmm. also what I really love. Um, and so four years into it, I decided, okay, I want to start my next company in the consumer space. <laughs> And um, uh, we were already running a profitable business. Everything was like steady state. Eventually, we were acquired by Microsoft, which was uh, using uh, Pando in order to power the delivery of um, Xbox games down to the Xbox. <laughs> to this day, if you own an Xbox yeah. at home, it has a little um, uh, application that's running in Xbox for delivery of the games. Uh, and it's using Pando, yeah. Oh, that's, that's, and so had they, they came to you I mean had you, you know how do you even get them as a client you know if you if you can remember that um, we had a sales force we had a, an enterprise sales guy okay. who would go out and knock on all the doors of the big uh, um, media companies software companies uh, game developers um, we approached Microsoft in the context originally of games mm-hmm. to the Xbox um, and that's how that's, that's, how it, it that's a, interesting uh, and so so after that so you left that and you left after you exited or you left pre, pre-exit I left pre-exit because it was at a steady state yeah 
And I am, I, I know this about myself, I'm a startup guy. When you're now basically optimizing an Excel spreadsheet um, and running a you know, profitable business, um, there are CEOs who enjoy that, that stage much more than I do. And I think we're probably better at it than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I knew that four years in it was the right time, and then the company was sold shortly after. And what, what was you must have been pretty happy with that. I mean, yeah, it was. I mean, uh, you know, the feeling. My first exit. The first exit. The feeling of like, wow, you know, you built something where it's somebody crazy. else wants it. It has some value. Yes. yes. And I'll tell you what, as an entrepreneur, you're also pretty happy that it survives and is being used by now hundreds of millions of people, you know, across the world uh, to download. You might not see it. It's not a consumer app, but it is being used to kind of move bits more efficiently around the internet, and that's something that. I'm, I'm proud of being uh, a part of it. It has legs. Yeah. Actually, just, actually there was a company called Babel. That's yeah. right. They were bought by Disney and they just shut the, they just, Disney just shut them down. Like, that typically happens, by the way. Yeah, it does. Yeah. You know, they buy it and they're excited about it when they buy it and integrate, but then they realize it's not, not worth it sometimes or they move the pieces around. And so, so, you, left, so you left there and then, then, you know, let's go to Bill Guard, right? So, you know, Bill Guard was, at the time when you started, it was, it was a new product. It wasn't really, there wasn't a lot of finance apps out there and trading apps, but trading apps are not really, you know, where personal finance is, which is really where you settled it. Yeah. So, uh, Mint was sort of like the precursor. It was like the first personal finance app got everybody's attention. I was very inspired by it myself. Um, but, uh, Billboard was almost uh, accidental. I had a, my wife had a, a, a charge on her credit card. She didn't recognize. She came to me, that's typically always a weird conversation when the wife goes, hey, husband, what's the charge on my credit card? Um, and we both didn't recognize it, and so I Googled it. And when I Googled it, I saw all these results of people complaining about the same charge on their, on their card. And that gave rise to the kind of lazy man's idea of, wow, what if you could you know, collect and harness all of that human knowledge about this uh, unstructured data of these weird billing descriptors? Uh, in order to protect everybody, alert people when, when it's obvious that things are scammy because humans are aware of it when they're checking their bills. And that was, that was how you know, BillGuard got started, this idea of crowdsourcing collective knowledge of people who are checking their bills for the majority of us who, like me, don't check our bills. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, set off to, to kind of solve that problem, which happened to me, you know? That's, uh, I think, one of the best ways for you to... to really get behind a problem. If it's something that's personal, uh, you feel it, you recognize it, you can relate. And uh, that, that's that's what happened with Builder. So, okay, so I mean, you know, that's, you know I, I totally agree with you. I mean, the, the best starts are, are, are a lot of times born from a personal uh, experience. Um, so you, you said, okay, you, great. Had the idea, you, you, I think you, Rafael was your co-founder as well. Yeah. So how did you, fi- you find him and had, Take us through this, the evolution, right? And, you know, you have to build out, you have to get a wireframe, the app, you have to develop yeah. it, then you have to push it out, right, in the app store. And, right. you know, did you did you do paid advertising? Did you do viral, you know, PR push? What was, okay, was right now you have a, a good marketing background and then you switch to the product side. Right, yeah. And you were really heavy on the product side. It, yeah. And you don't really see that a lot. I mean, it's a, it's a, it, it's a good thing. Um, and now you taking all that into this company, right? To Bill Garden, you have to do both, right? You have building the product out and then you also have to market it. And, right. and back then, even what, I think, when did it launch? It launched in? 2010, I believe. Okay, so even, the, and, and the, it was a pain to get downloads though. It wasn't an easy thing to all of a sudden, right. you know, so walk me through that a little bit. Sure, so, you know, the, the, 
the first step is right finding a great uh, co-founding CTO because I was just the product guy who could wireframe you know and I did basically design the product of how I think it should look and how it should work um, but then I need somebody to build it and um, I kind of used my network um, at the time I uh, I really wanted this guy named Leo Golan who was a Sayota guy uh, who was at the time at Tabula and not available but I asked him who would you who would you pick if you were starting this company because you're my blueprint um, and he said I got I've got two ideas for you one is this like incredibly seasoned white haired uh, R&D manager incredibly uh, technical and, and capable of building a company second one is a 22 year old kid who's still in the army but is one of the brightest and most high potential you know kids I, I've met and I didn't have to think twice I wanted to meet the kid right away <laughs> and I met him and um, Rafael and I kind of fell in love like uh, almost on the first date which was at a coffee shop here in Tel Aviv <laughs> and hit it off and he built the first prototype by himself like he did the whole thing and he could he had that skill set till this day by the way I think he's one of the most fundable uh, you know uh, tech entrepreneurs in all of Israel today he is so seasoned uh, with his experience at Billgard that he, whatever he does next I'll, I'm going to beg him to, to take my money and let me invest <laughs> Um, and uh, he built it and we saw very early on that there was real opportunity by simply just kind of scraping all the data that was available on the web even before we had a network of, yeah. of a crowd that we could find these anomalies and these patterns of like just weird stuff unrecognized stuff um, that we could teach our system what it was and help alert people so um, the original idea was to build a, a web app which we marketed as like an antivirus for your bills because we went on and we asked people, hey, if we build something that would check your bills for you and alert you anytime it found something um, suspicious or wrong that your bank missed, would you, and it was free, would you want that? Of course, everybody said yes, right? Yeah, I would want that. Who would not want that? And so it was, we were kind of believing that if we just built this thing, everybody would come. And the idea was, was very attractive to investors. Um, I was already kind of a, a little bit of a known entity uh, at the time from Pando. And so, you know, Adam Fisher came to my uh, uh, apartment one day and literally on, on the patio there uh, said, okay, how much do you need? I'm in. Um, and we did a $3 million seed round with basically me and a PowerPoint. Um, and uh, so we had money. We launched this web-based antivirus for bills um, we actually got quite a bit of attention. We uh, we went to TechCrunch Disrupt and we came in as the runner-up for 2011, like top startup in the world. And um, so we got what uh, Paul Graham of Y Combinator calls the, the TechCrunch of initiation, where you get this bump of hype yeah. and everybody comes and they register for the web app. I think we had like something around 50,000 registered users for the web app. But then slowly after, you have what what Paul calls the trough of sorrow, right? <laughs> where reality sets in, you don't have the hype anymore, and now you just got to actually build a product that will organically scale. It did not. Okay, talk about failures. It was a thesis that uh, was was born of a red herring, a a wrong analysis of consumer intent versus consumer action. And I talk a lot about this now. I give a bunch of talks in universities all over the world and. Uh, Billgard is now a business case at Stanford. Um, and I talk about this gap between intent and action. 
most entrepreneurs who are emotionally connected to their product will go say, hey, if I build this, would you want it? And most people you ask will kind of say, because they feel bad for you, <laughs> yeah, I would want it. Um, or if it just sounds good, they'll say, yeah, that sounds like I would want it. But that is not what you should be tracking. What you should be tracking is action, not intent. Action is what is unearthed when you look at the data of how people actually use your product, which is the classic rule, get it out there, get it early, iterate fast, learn from the mistakes, and find that cohort, that early connector cohort that actually really gives a damn about the product you're solving. And uh, we did not do that uh, well with the consumer app. The web app was sort of like growing flat. It wasn't uh, scaling very uh, in a very exciting way, but in parallel, we were uh, recognized by the banks as, as having some pretty innovative technology that they might want to deploy internally. And so we, uh, we pivoted to the enterprise, to working with banks as a technology that they could deploy to hundreds of millions of cardholders versus us trying to sign them up one by one with our marketing uh, budget, right? And um, did that for, I think, two, two and a half, almost three years, burned through a bunch of VC money, went, got, I think, half of the, the top 10 U.S. banks in pilots with us, but uh, none of them deployed in that period of time, and we were running out of VC money. Um, classic rule that a really, really young startup should not be beholden to a really, really large enterprise unless you are one of the top three strategic priorities in the next 12 months for that enterprise, and we were not. We were a kind of nice to have uh, cost optimization for a fraud department at a bank. And that, that uh, rendered us way low in the priority list. Um, we were running out of money and then we had a big decision to make. Do we kind of wait and let our destiny be dictated by a few VPs at, at large banks? Or do we take our destiny in our own hand and figure out a way to grow this thing on our own? Just on stop here saying, were you upset at yourself? When, when, when you, you know, you had a lot of success in your other startup and then you realize you came there and you're saying to yourself like, yeah, I thought it, but my assumptions were off. Were you like, were you kicking yourself? Because I, I know that the, the end story is great. I mean, mm-hmm. you pivoted you, and I didn't know you pivoted, by the way. I did not. I was just thought, okay, you built an app and that's, that's what I remember. Yeah. You know, I don't remember the early side. Right. But were you kicking yourself a little bit? Well, like, how the hell did this happen to me? Like, I should have known better. Yeah. So I have um, the the ultimate uh, good fortune of having the number one, I think, characteristic that any entrepreneur should have, which is optimism, almost naive optimism. Like you just kind of think it's going to work out. I'll figure it out. It's going to be okay. You know. Um, and I am. Uh, I'm an optimist, and I don't get down on myself and say, oh, God, I shouldn't have done it. I, I definitely have regrets. I definitely am very cognizant of my mistakes. I like to think I fail forward, meaning <laughs> I, I learn from mistakes and make the appropriate adjustments. Um, I've made more mistakes than probably anyone listening to this, to this podcast. Like We didn't get into all that stuff, but along the way, you, in order to find the right path, you've got to try and fail mm-hmm. until you find the right path of what's called product market fit. In the case of Billgard, I was I was um, a little disappointed in myself of not remembering the previous lesson learned, which was stay true to your DNA, who you are. A company is is a um, is basically an extension 
of the founders. And Rafael and I are consumer people. We are uh, we are passionate about and very good at building consumer apps. And we were sitting in a bunch of bank boardrooms. You know, I hired up a bunch of uh, salespeople and marketing people to sell into banks. It wasn't me. It wasn't true to what I was good at or loved. And I was a little bit upset at myself that I didn't recognize that from the previous mistake that I had made. And I think it's unfortunately the, 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 the law of uh, startup physics that no matter what, I don't care how seasoned you are, you're going to make mistakes and sometimes you're going to repeat them, including the ones that you would mentor another entrepreneur not to do. Mm-hmm. But once you're in the trenches, you're not the coach looking from the sideline, you naturally fall into these traps of, wow, a C-level executive at Citibank called me in and said, we'll put budget of X millions of dollars to deploy this thing in the next year. And I believed her. Yeah. You understand? And that was me being uh, a little bit naive. Yeah. No, it, which, again, you know, I think 90% of people that get the same thing, they would do the same thing. You yeah, know, it's not like, but again, you know, so I right, said, so great. So you so that happened, then you realize, let's go back down to yeah. your, your product people. Let's go to the BDC world. Yes. That's where we live. That's right. And so you built an app. Exactly right. And by the way, I want to give uh, some credit where credit is due. My, my investors who were on the sidelines as coaches were telling me the advice of listen, do not wait on these big banks. It's not your strength. It's not the real opportunity here for, for, the, for the product, the technology. Let's first build a massive consumer. Uh, app and then later, well, we, we might sell some technology to banks. But uh, and uh, I'll never forget this meeting with Vinod Kosla at Kosla Ventures with mm-hmm. our Series B. And he sat down to me before he wrote our our check for the Series B round, which is a ten million dollar round. And he said, um, "I disagree that you should uh, go to the banks. I'm going to give you the money anyway. We're going to give you enough to make this mistake, <laughs> but make sure you don't run out of this money before you go back to consumer." Yeah. He literally said that to me before <laughs> signing the term sheet. And I was like, okay, I'm going to prove him wrong. And, da, da, da. and he was right. And I really owe him a bunch of gratitude that he let me make the mistake. Okay. And that's a very important, uh, I think, dynamic between investors and founders that sometimes you've got to have uh, the market slap the entrepreneur around and show them reality rather than just a mentor saying, do what I say because I'm right. No one really knows unless you try. And we tried. We burned through some uh, a couple million dollars of VC money. We had enough money. We pivoted back to consumer. And this time, when we went back into the consumer space, we learned from all the mistakes of the web app, which was, number one, if it is a, uh, a web-based uh, security product where you're supposed to set it and forget it, and it'll alert you when something bad happens, you'll have zero virality because you have zero engagement. If you have zero virality, you have very high costs of acquiring a customer. Mm-hmm. You're basically a security company like a LifeLock or a Symantec, yeah. which nobody ever talks to their buddies about at the, the baseball game, going, hey, man, I love my McAfee. You got to get, get McAfee, yeah. right? So you don't have word of mouth. You don't have organic. You spend hundreds of dollars on what's called FUD marketing, fear, mm-hmm. uncertainty, and doubt. And we didn't have that money. So we said, we're not going back to market with a security product. We are going to figure out a way to build a lean-forward, high-engaged, uh, app that will almost trick you into checking your bills so that we can build this network of intelligence through the crowd. And so we built a mobile app, not a web app. We made it designed like an email inbox that you would quickly swipe through transactions that we would recommend you look at. We collected all the data centrally. We taught our algorithms what's a good email or what's a, a good transaction or bad transaction. 
Um, and it really started working. And this is credit to the product team here in Israel, which was led by Rafael. We were down at the pixel level. Every click, every UI was thought uh, uh, meticulously on engagement and retention. And we built this really, really great product that uh, grew tremendously. I mean, uh, we were at 2 million uh, registered customers, and I'll skip ahead here, mm-hmm. by the time we were approached to be acquired and growing you know, for a couple of dollars to acquire a customer. Um, it was very, very efficient because of its inherent uh, um, virality as a great consumer app that people were, t- were telling each other about. Yeah. Wow. That is that. that <laughs> that's a, that's a great story there. Um, all right. So you know, how many people did you end up having at Billcard? So we also were in around the, I think at the peak thirty five forty. And how was the environment of the company? Like, did you? It's incredible. Um, we had a beautiful office, you know, on Rothschild, corner of Allenby, like the heart of the of the Israeli tech scene. Um, we we really hired some incredible, young, intelligent, kind, loving uh, people. Like we had an incredible culture at Billgard. I think we're going to have a Billgard mafia, like the PayPal mafia, because a bunch of these folks are all entrepreneurs uh, building great companies. Like, you know, you have Ido and uh, Nasaf at Riskify, for example, um, and some other ones starting companies now. Um, so it was, it was a really, really great group of people. Some of the best I've worked with. So that's, that's great about Bill Gard and, and the Bill Gard Mafia and how a lot of the employees really are going on to build their own things. So, you know, we're going to wind it down now. And a, a couple of questions. This is a little bit more of the fun area. What did you want to be when you were 15? Do you remember? I wanted to make movies. Filmmaker. That's I, You're the second person I, I, I know. I should really put you in touch with the first one. Who yeah. <laughs> said they say he wanted to be a filmmaker? Yeah. Um, I, I know. Either um, that or a CEO. I remember CEO was always like, I think almost from an ego perspective, I kind of wanted to be a CEO. But, uh, true passion was art and filmmaking. Got it. And what did you know? Is there anything that you do on a daily basis that keeps you on your game, keeps you focused? Um, so right now I'm in a very different phase of my career where I am much more balanced, kind of work-life balance, and I have three young kids at home, and I spend a lot of time with them. And I think that balance actually makes me makes the time where I am thinking work. Uh, much, much more productive and effective. Um, I, I, uh, I run Tech Aviv, which has me basically hanging out with the most creative, intelligent entrepreneurs in Israel and all across our global branches so that it's such a conducive environment for me to also be uh, thinking and learning. And I think that keeps me incredibly in touch with, uh, with um, the latest and greatest of what could be done uh, to make the world a better place through technology, and, and tech, tech Aviv is, is is really it's a, it's a it's a, took on a life of its own, and it was started in two thousand and seven, and it really helps a lot of founders, gives them a lot of guidance, and mentorship. Um, it's an unknown in a sense, like a, a quasi incubator, quasi like mentorship program, where you know I know that you know I've been to a number of events, um, and it really helps a tremendous amount of. First time, you know, second time, seasoned entrepreneurs really get an understanding and. And give them access to a lot of the knowledge in a sense, like you, okay, you know, crowdsourcing knowledge, something that you, yeah. you're doing on the human level that's instead exactly, of the computer exactly. level. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing is productivity. Is there anything that you do, you know, any, you know, email type of technologies that you use on a productivity, productivity level that helps you sift through a lot of the noise? 
Sure. So first of all, I, I recently made the switch from Gmail to Superhuman. And while it's uh, very expensive, uh, costs about $30 a month, it literally half the, the amount of time I spend on email a day. It is an incredibly effective productivity tool for email, which is I, where I live. I live in email all day long, right? And so that is, uh, I give a high, high recommendation for anyone who can afford to pay that much on email. Um, I am uh, pretty good at multitasking through uh, Slack, through, I use an app called Things for my to-do list. Um, I, uh, I am doing my best not to be online all the time, but when I am, I'm very focused. So when I'm in front of my computer, I am cranking. You can't talk to me. I'm, I'm in the zone. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you know, with that, um, I want to thank you for your time. I, I really appreciate it. It was, it was great to hear some of the stories, and I hope uh, the listeners will enjoy it as well. Uh, feel free, whoever's listening, and I know the, you know, listenership is growing on a weekly basis. This is our going to be our 13th episode, which will nice. launch probably in a few weeks. Um, make sure you rate it on iTunes. Uh, all ratings help. And thank you so much. Love this episode of the Plugged In Podcast? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.